Welcome to the Hunt Pack Country Podcast. This is episode number 445. And today we're telling a very fun and helpful hunting story. It is about a late season rifle elk hunt in Montana that ended with success and a beautiful massive trophy elk, but had a lot of setbacks along the way. If anything, this is one, a fun and entertaining story, two, an example of things not going right and sticking with it anyway, and three, a perfect example of really just logistical challenges of late season hunts. There's a lot to take away from this one. Thank you to our guest, Rob, for sharing the story and the lessons learned with us. Before we dive into that discussion, if you guys have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, as always, you can send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. And if you are enjoying the show, it would help us a ton if you just share it with a friend or leave us a rating or review in whatever podcast app you're using. Hit pause and do that now if you can. Come on back. Let's dive into this conversation with Rob. Rob, welcome to the podcast, man. I uh, I'm excited to chat with you today. Got a an email from you about what sounds like a a difficult but rewarding hunt, and we'll tell that story. But before we do, go ahead and start with an introduction and background, just kind of some context to let listeners know who you are a little bit, and where you're from, that type of thing. Yeah, for sure. I was born and raised in in Northwest Montana, and I was fortunate that. Uh, my dad was was big into hunting, so I got to see that and be exposed to it from an early age on. Uh, I think you have to be 12, you know, to legally hunt, but, you know, you get to carry your dad's rifle and, and tag along and make lots of noise for him when you're when you're a little kid. So I got exposed to it early. Uh, by the time you get to high school, you know, you get your truck and, and it's all your high school buddies, you know, bombing around, making even more noise, looking for animals. So uh, exposed early, which was good, primarily rifle, but did pick up a bow. Um, down the road but i'd always watch my dad before i could even hunt and they would do these kind of bigger uh, expedition type hunts they would float the missouri and do these seven to ten day you know 100 plus mile commute trips um, and just just hunt the the breaks and the blm stuff more for the adventure than than really to, to hunt aspects of it uh, but i got to see that growing up and that always kind of called to me and appealed to me so as i kind of became you know older in life, I, I began to try to mimic some of those things. And so I try to do now uh, an, an adventure expedition style hunt where I'm targeting something that's either low density or, or uh, a new species, a new area, or just a fun adventure where, you know, I, I might see something I might not, but it's, you know, it's more for the adventure and just the excitement aspect. And then I usually generally do around Veterans Day uh, a week with a good, a good hunting buddy in Montana. Uh, or somewhere else and, and try to do just a week of rifle. We stay at my parents' place and it's it's not super intense, but it's just a fun, you know, good good time and great experience. Mainly targeting deer. Uh, but growing up in Montana, you're over the counter tag. You can you can hunt a ton of the state and you get access to uh, all of archery and, and all of rifles. So if you are, you know, committed, you can hunt, you know, dang near sixty days. Uh, and so when I moved to, to Washington for college, that I went to get my, my hunting tags and I quickly realized, you know, other states aren't the same. 
uh, in the West. You can't just hunt, you know, all of archery and all of rifle and all these different, you know, areas of the state. So I had to learn about the points game um, the hard way going into, you know, these these Western states with zero points when I was, you know, early adult, later than I should have been for points. Uh, and so I kind of dove head in and, and now I have a decent point pool in a lot of Western states. And that's kind of what led me to to this this trip was it was my first I think my first uh, limited entry tag I've actually drawn, uh, and it was uh, I think I burnt nine or ten points on this specific one, uh, but first one and it came with a lot more challenges kind of than I anticipated not necessarily physical challenges uh, you know it wasn't like a crazy backpack hunt but just you know mental challenges and logistical challenges and the the style of it was was much different than I was used to. Yeah. Yeah, that was one thing that I was interested in talking to you more about to hear about because, as you said, it's not, as we'll get into, it's not like this backpack hunt or what on the surface you would maybe think there's this crazy challenge, but you guys got into some difficult situations, had some adversity, some logistics that were thrown for a wrench, and it's kind of one of those things I wanted to to hear more about and highlight because sometimes it's like you have these truck-based or, you know, base camp hunts and you think, oh, well, it's not a backpack hunt or it's not crazy remote so it's going to be quote-unquote easier but uh, as we'll hear about <laughs> there were some details that certainly made this one not so easy that's for sure um you know before we get into this <laughs> we just mentioned this before we started recording to to you steve you know rob's one of the our customers been a customer for years and you know we have customers and i recognize the name and don't always remember why but rob i'll i'll never kind of forget your name and always think of you because we put out an article uh, I think two or three years ago about like the right and wrong way to load meat and antlers on your pack and it was this article and we sent it out in our email list and it showed like all these examples and highlighted things guys did right things guys did wrong and you emailed me after that and was like hey thanks a lot because I I hid your face and you know, didn't really know it was you at the time, but you were you were one of the guys that got called out for doing some things, quote unquote, wrong uh, in terms of the best way that you could load meat or antlers. And apparently your buddies recognized that it was you and called you out, huh? Yeah, they did. I didn't even see it come out. I saw the newsletter, but I hadn't read it yet. And I, my phone had a couple of buddies reach out. And they're like, dude, I think you're on the, the newsletter. And I got excited. Like, oh, because I had a sweet bulb here before. <laughs> and so I hopped on there and went. And I was like, no, no, no. These are the, these are the know what not to do arrows. <laughs> and there was like more arrows on mine than any other picture. So uh, <laughs> after that, I made it a point to like shoot the first bull I could find just so I could pack it the correct way and like vindicate myself. And then <laughs> the following year, I think it was a year later, actually, I shot a smaller bull, but uh, the, I still didn't do right. Cause I don't think I had trekking poles. Uh, and so this year I was like, I vow, I actually, I think saw you market the, the Portland Portsmouth uh, show when I got yeah. to the K4. And I was like, this year I'm like going to vindicate myself. And long story short, I still forgot my trekking poles in the truck. Uh, so I, I still didn't get all three, but we're, we're getting better. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. It really yeah. just stopped me in that, that original photo. Cause I mean, you could tell like it was snowy, you're kind of side hill and kind of down the somewhat steep slope. And I'm like, man, snow and it's slick and you had this heavy load and it was loaded a little awkward. And I was like, man, no trekking poles. This guy's going to get hurt, you know? Yeah, it was actually the last, like, pull. There was, like, a little kind of 
skid road, old like Brushton kind of road, a few hundred yards above it. And it was like the last push to that flat spot to kind of resituate everything. And yeah. it was deep and brushy. So antlers down, they they were hitting, you know, brush in the hillside. So I just had them right. up for that for that mm. push, but it it didn't it didn't save me any newsletters. <laughs> uh, in the future, Mark, you're going to have to email out before you do people on the, what to do and not do. Get, yeah. some, get some approval. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hide. Yeah. I, I thought I hid identities, but apparently, yeah. When you have good buddies who recognize your, you know, your clothing or your bull or what have you, at least those few guys may know, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next time I'm just going to lie. If they ask if it's me, no, it's not me. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, jumping back to this hunt story, I do want to get into it pretty quickly because I know that there's a lot to pull from it. You mentioned it's limited entry. You said you burned nine to ten points. Um, and it, as you said, it's kind of your first one, kind of in this. Like you've been gaining points for years, but you're starting to use them, starting to burn them, and you know, one of the aspects that comes with that is just kind of some added pressure. Um, and so I'm curious, just like on that topic. Uh, and I think that came in a couple ways because one, it was limited entry and you burned points, but two, you also had buddies and your dad and some other guys that came to join you. And I'm just curious how, how you handled that. Cause I know that from your experience, it was like one of the notable things that was an aspect of this hunt is just that kind of added pressure. Yeah. It's something I honestly didn't think I was going to have an issue with, you know, you hear about guys drawing these, these limited tags or sheet tags. Uh, and and they talk about it and i was like yeah the big big babies you just go hunt you know your elk your sheep so i was i was kind of surprised it started out initially when uh you know my dad jumped on right away and said yep i want to come help be your camp chef or you know whatever you need and so obviously i took him up on that and uh and then his hunting buddy of of you know decades he was going to come out as well and they were going to more just kind of help with camp and, and explore, but be there, you know, if, if they could help glass or shit on a knob or something for me. Uh, and then another good buddy was going to take a ton of time off of work because we were going to hunt for like nine or 10 days in this first stint. And he's going to take all that time off of work uh, and, and come help me, which, you know, that's not insignificant. And so I was like, man, I started feeling pressure of, of, you know, do I need to shoot just like the first decent bull I see just to get these guys, you know, back to work and back to their families. And, and so I kind of felt pressured there, both on their time commitment. Uh, and then I started having just weird dreams, like three, probably three months out, uh, I started having dreams. Like I would be honest, a stud bull in my rangefinder, like wouldn't give me a range. Or I would be like ready to shoot a bull, but my, my, you know, trigger would just click or my rifle would jam or, and one, I think the magazine like fell out of the rifle when I was like loading it. And all these things were just, you know, causing this weird, like this weird doubt in my head of like, man, am I prepared for this or what am I getting myself into? And it, I didn't really talk to anyone about it, but the only thing I could think of productively was like, I will just, I guess, spend some more time, you know, trying to get prepared for it. And so, it's a unit you can't really scout in person just because the the rifle elk aren't necessarily there yet. I mean, you could you could see historical you know signs potentially, but um, so you can go just kind of see elk there. For example, you could learn the roads, and that probably would have been the highlight. Um, and so I tried to just you know e scouting, just map out. I thought water might be a potential issue if it was you know been a super dry summer or super super cold fall, stuff was frozen and water was an issue but i mapped up you know all the water 
uh, I talked to, I tried to, to plan it as I could. I talked to the game biologist, uh, the game warden, um, and the game warden was actually really helpful. Uh, and just that I really researched anything I could think of uh, just to get, you know, a better understanding of it. One thing that was unique about this versus what I'm used to hunting, I'm used to hunting, you know, this massive, you know, public, you know, forest service land. Uh, and this one was a lot of that you're playing the public private boundary game. There was state, there was BLM, and there was um, some block one and, or there was some type one and type two block management. And so trying to navigate all that, which is, is very new to me. Um, that's one of the reasons I talked to the game board and just said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm new to this private public, you know, border hunting stuff and just wanted to get any tips he had. And uh, I just wanted his phone number in my phone in case something weird happened. I already, you know, have it ready to call him. And he was super helpful. Gave me some, some sleepers or he sees, you know, elk that time of year and gave me the most important thing. He gave me three spots of, you know, Hey, these are where I, these are areas where people think it's, it's public access based on the map, but it's actually, you know, the easement's not far enough. It's actually private. You can't access the public from this particular road. And so that was helpful to use to help, you know, keep myself out of trouble. But that's kind of the, what I did to try to, to try to, you know, fight off the felt pressure was just research, you know, more and more whenever I'd kind of feel like I was underprepared or, or would feel pressure. And when I talked to my buddy a little bit, he seemed, he seemed as, if not more excited than I was, the one who was taking all that time off of work. And, you know, after a few, a few conversations, I, I realized he was fine. If we need to go the whole, you know, nine, 10 days, uh, he was going to be fine with that. So that helped too towards the end, but I definitely felt bad having someone take that much time off work and family for for a tag you know they can't even pull the trigger on that's interesting i mean i think it's uh there's a really smart move of you to try and do as much research as possible and kind of like due diligence knowing like i'm not familiar with not only this area but kind of playing the game and i I use that term not literally because there's nothing really to play with but just navigating that private, public, and different state versus federal agencies versus just this one giant swath of federal land that you said you're used to hunting. Um, so it was really good of you, I think, to reach out and be like, hey, I'm new to this. I don't I don't want to make mistakes. I don't want to trespass. I don't want to, you know, cause any issues. Um, yeah, I mean, what what was it? One, I'm curious, he said he gave you three spots where hunters have kind of got into some trouble and so is that just like a you know the lines don't match up and what you see on like onyx or some other mapping software what was the details around that roughly yeah the essentially the at an at a, what a normal person would probably zoom in you know to look at to look at a road it looks like you know this corner this this public you know touches a county road and you could just park right there and, and access it but you know if you zoom in you know, to like the max Onyx allows, you, you actually see a, a tiny gap between, you know, the corner and the road. And the, I don't know the easement, I want to say it was like 30 feet, but there's a, there's an, an easement thing, but long story short, that, that corner is outside that, you know, easement footage from the road. And so there's no legal access. And there was three of these, these points. And he said, those are three common points where he either has to warn people or cite people. And so he just told me, you know, spots to avoid and two or three, I'd actually had, had flagged as like potential access points. And, you know, once I got off the phone, I went to him and zoomed in. I was like, yeah, sure enough, you know, zoomed in on all the way max. You can see where there's, where's that gap. But 
Hmm. What, I, what I would consider a normal level somebody would zoom into to check on something, um, they still showed as touching their own. So I was definitely glad I, I talked to them. Yeah. What type of gap was that? I mean, we're talking like 30 feet, 100 feet, you know, like roughly. Uh, I would I would guess about 100 feet. Um, okay. But, you know, it, it sure, it looks dang close to the road on a map, you know. Yeah, I don't know that. I mean, I I haven't personally been in situations where I've had to navigate that. So I think that's what it stood out to me of just, I wanted to highlight that point. Um, and even for me, it's highlighted of like, look at that. You know, if you see the corner, you think you see something touching or something marginal, like make sure you're doing your due diligence there. Yeah, for sure. And after that, I kind of went through and, you know, it's been a few evenings just on map stuff, just looking to, you know, make sure the other access points I had, had marked or, or thought about, you know, were going to be still be viable. And they were, but um, yeah, definitely. I, I was glad I talked to him once, once I told him why I was calling and, you know, I was new to this, he was helpful. And he then, you know, I don't know if he tells everyone elk info, but he was, you know, he gave me some, here's where I see him this time of year. And here's a couple of sleepers people don't normally think to look, but you know, they'll still move through here. So um, ended up being, being probably one of the best contacts. That's great. I like what you said too. I mean, the there's so much like defaulting and it's talked about on podcasts and everything else, like e-scout and e-scout and look at, you know, habitat and whatever. But there's certain hunts where I mean, because it's migratory more, you can e-scout certain things like funnels and obviously access, but you're not so much e-scouting for necessarily like terrain or what's gonna hold elk or the quote unquote typical ways you would e-scout. So it just stands out to me for you in this hunt, it's later season, it's more migratory, pushing towards winter grounds. It sounds like you had a very smart plan of like, let me e-scout access and um, opportunity and then identify certain things like this one water being very relevant. Because if you just, I think are defaulting to the normal e-scouting mindset that just doesn't apply to all hunts you know especially when there's changing seasons and things like that no for sure and you know looking at terrain and, and habitat as well there's it, a, a lot of it just doesn't look elky you know when you're looking at it from like a, a topo map perspective yeah. but um they're clearly there and they have a lot of escapement in that private land and they kind of have some some agricultural stuff um further away that they're able to you know get fat and happy in the in the summer so it has the things that let them get you know a good age class but it uh from a hunting perspective it's you know it's not where a normal guy's like oh there's going to be elk here it doesn't doesn't have that you know elky that elky vibe to it what was your expectations for lack of better words or goals like going into this hunt i mean we talked a little bit about you know, you burn points you got people along there's a little bit of pressure because of that but like at the end of the day what were you hoping to shoot or did you have some sort of like minimum in your head or it's just like, Hey, I'm going to know the bull I'm happy with when I see it. Uh, yeah, I went back and forth a lot. I, I, I won't lie and say I didn't have appointment. I, my goal was to shoot a 360 bull or bigger. I talked to um, some previous tag holders uh, and there had been multiple, you know, 400 inch bulls. There had been some high three eighties. Uh, and then there's a ton of, you know, you're like low 300 bulls too. And so the opportunity existed and I, you know, I knew I wouldn't probably have it again, at least anytime soon. Uh, and so I went in with, you know, 
fairly high expectations um, that I wanted to shoot. And I, I, I was prepared to not to eat a tag for this season, um, but I was prepared to come back for, you know, another 10 days, uh, the last 10 days of the season, basically, if I couldn't find something, you know, that was what I wanted that, that first 10 days. Uh, but at the same time, I, I also am not great at, you know, judging elk, a, like a 350 to 380 bull. Like when I say they, they all just look giant, you know, to me. Yeah. So um, I, I knew that the one that excited me is the one that I was going to, was going to shoot, but I kind of had this, this personal goal of wanting to break that 360 barrier. And I came very close, but I did fall a couple inches short. Did you spend much time researching, trying to identify what makes a, you know, a big bowl big? Yeah, I did. And I had, you know, little, little cheat sheet screenshots saved on my phone. And, you know, mm-hmm. if I, I, you know, I knew the front to this one should be this many inches. And if I lay this, you know, antler tip sideways, it should be 20 inches. And then it extends past that, you know, it's definitely a 50 inch view. If I had all these kind of things, I was in the back of my head and I was thinking there's a outfitter, I think his name's Jay Scott. And he has a ton of good content on, on field judging, you know, trophy class deer and elk and, I talked to him a little bit too and and but his I found his stuff was very helpful and just kind of you know here's what some of these base measurements you know generally are on the hoof and you know when you add up these things you know you're looking at this class versus this class of bull and that was really helpful yeah nice yeah I'm I'm following the camp of what you originally described like once they get over 330 and was like yeah that's big I, I don't know let's kill it and then put, we'll measure it after the fact like yeah uh, but I've never been on a hunt where there's a potential to shoot you know 360 plus bulls so yeah, they, they, yeah, they just, yeah, they all look giant to me. And I, that's part of why my buddy Doug was, was there too. Um, he had had a, a, a similar region, uh, limited entry tag a few years prior and he had looked over, you know, a ton of bulls and, and I, I wanted, I wanted someone to be with me to, to say, you know, shoot, don't shoot. And, mm. uh, he, I'm glad he was there because there was one of the bulls after, after a dry spell. I saw a bull and I was like, oh, he looks pretty big in the spot and scope. And I look at him and he's, you know, shaking. He's like, no, no, that's, that's not for this tag. And so I'm glad he was there. I probably shot a, a smaller one earlier on. But um, yeah, having someone there to, to, that's seen a lot of, of big elk was helpful for sure. Good problems to have. <laughs> yeah, normally I'm a, is it legal? Like a shoot it kind of guy. So yeah, this yeah. <laughs> was unique for me and it's not the norm for sure. Well, I guess rolling into the hunt story itself, um, it kind of sets context and scene for, all right, you got these guys, like what is, what does the hunt look like? You guys are setting a base camp in one area and covering ground on the road at first, or I guess just like roll into like part logistics, but part the hunt story itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So the, and the final plan ended up being, um, I was going to roll in, I think season open on Saturday. I was going to roll in Thursday, long drive and just occupy camp and try to get, you know, I had one of, I had two or three spots for camp picked out. I wanted to try to set up before other people moved in. There's super low bull tag numbers for this unit, um, but it is general for deer. And I think there's um, certain times of year, there's like general for cow tags too. So I, I knew there'd be, be a lot of people but not necessarily competing for bulls if that makes sense so i want to get in early so i i got the spot great spot uh and the plan was going to be my my dad and his good hunting buddy matt were going to come the the following day and then my the guy who was going to help me take time off of work doug he was going to come that following day as well 
and there was going to be a fifth guy originally, and, and he ended up having some medical stuff and, and had to, to cancel kind of the last second. But yeah, we were going to be base camped um, in a in a central spot on on you know federal BLM that allowed you know relatively quick access to either the federal or the state or the various block managements in this area. And there was no like great spot, but um, this was kind of a the best kind of central area for for the what we were going after. The I had a I had a tunnel tent set up. Um, my dad and his his buddy they had initially a nine by nine canvas uh, pyramid wall tent type setup, and then the the probably best setup was my buddy Doug. He came with a like insulated ice fishing shelter, and that thing was uh, it was pretty pretty awesome. Quick to set up, insulated, super warm, did great in the wind. Uh, and overall, I think mean, that's a, whenever doing truck base camping in the cold, that, that would be a pretty sweet way to go. So that's how camp kind of looked like. And we were going to do, I felt bad that they were, you know, taking so much time off for me. So I wanted to try to do as much of the food as I could myself. So I basically had uh, a bunch of, I had all the breakfast and all the lunch stuff where we'd kind of make breakfast and lunch every day. Breakfast was, you know, cold type stuff, easy stuff. And then lunch was I'd had a ton of sandwich and, you know, snacky things and, and nuts and gummies and, and, you know, chips and bags and things. And then we were going to do a hot dinner each night um, once we all got back to, to camp. And my dad was going to kind of lead that with um, on the Dutch oven or the big stove. And we, we tried to prepare as much as we could ahead of time. So, you know, we did you know things like enchiladas and chilies and soups. And we'd try to cook them ahead of time and, and freeze them so we could just kind of reheat them um, just to save time so we'd all be tired. That was kind of how the base camp setup was. And then, you know, once opening day kicked off, uh, my dad and his buddy, they were just going to kind of two rounds explore. They had deer tags. Uh, and then myself and Doug, we were going to, you know, hit it hard for to try to glass and find a, a mature bull. Uh, but you're right. Everything was was driving base and we were, needed to be mobile because I had secured some permission to different um, type two block management. And so they were all kind of different different areas. So the kind of plan initially was going to be to hit up a different block of management, you know, every couple of days. And if it was, you know, good hunting, you know, stay there. If it was not good hunting, then we had shift gears for that day and then go try a different either state or BLM, you know, public section until we could at least find where like a band of elk were. So that was kind of the, the plan. You shared with me the for weather forecast that you were looking at going into this and you're arriving a couple of days before season and it's in the eighties and then opening day in the seventies, but then quickly snapping to being like teens and twenties and snow. So that that's a wild variable to deal with. Yeah. Setting up, I pulled in that night, setting up camp and I got there, dried it dark. And I think it was 82 or 84 on my truck said when I like parked to, to set up camp and the sun's already down and I was blown away. I don't think I've ever had, you know, an opening day that warm that I can recall, at least in a long time. That's like archery weather, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, I was, I was concerned about the hunting aspect of it, especially the first three days being pretty warm. I was just concerned, you know, about, about elk being where they need to be for me to be able to tag them, you know? So, uh, weather was definitely concerned. And then, like you said, it was switching to cold and snow, you know, that brings its own, headaches especially in this in this region uh, as we'll find out you ended up getting sick in those first couple of days before the hunt actually started it sounds like pretty sick that had to have been another worrisome way to start this whole adventure 
Yeah. So I, on the drive over, I purposely didn't want to eat something, you know, like it was like an all day in the truck event. I left at like four in the morning, you know, got there late at night kind of thing. And I was like, you know, eat, eat healthy stuff. Don't eat anything greasy and gross. And so I was driving through and I was like, I'll just get this, uh, it's like a market fresh sandwich from Arby's. And it's just, looks like a normal sandwich you'd make at home you know it's not their like roast beef one and I'm like, oh, perfect and then i set up camp that night went to bed and felt okay and then yeah at some point in the early morning i woke up and and i was like oh like something just doesn't feel right just like pressure and cramps in my stomach and uh and that's how i woke up on that first day which is going to be primarily a scouting day uh that friday before the opener and uh, when i finally did get out of you know, I was going to get up early and go glass and, and it didn't, didn't do that. I woke up, um, no appetite, you know, tried to have a little coffee, couldn't try to have some food, couldn't just horrible, horrible stomach ache. And I was like, man, did I get, my first thought was we have a, a five-year-old I'm like, man, did I get like a stomach bug from our, our kids? And so I texted my wife and see how they were doing and like, nope, we're all healthy. So I was like, man, I bet it was from that sandwich. Cause I was willing that was, that was something I didn't make from home that was, you know, like, like snacky, you know? And so, yeah, I think it was food poisoning and it ended up being the first couple of days. It was pretty miserable. That, that first scout day on Friday, uh, it was real bad. I was super weak, like super dizzy. I'm trying to help them set up camp. Uh, I couldn't even really do any, you know, physical exertion. I would just get dizzy and, and kind of sweaty and have to sit in the shade. It doesn't help. It's like 77 ish that, you know, first Friday still. Uh, and in the, there's not a lot of shade out there. And so it just, yeah, super hot and dehydrated. Like I'm having a hard time keeping things down and it's made for a real rough, a rough first couple of days going into this. Well, scouting day is kind of a not utilized, still battle in the sickness, no, helping it, those guys get set up and then just going to have to roll straight into opening morning, huh? Yeah, I did go out and shoot my rifle just to confirm. Um, I found a, a, a I kind of drove around, scouted, and and ended up, I wanted to shoot my gun anyway, and so I found a, a sweet little rock, and, and I think it was 636 or 736 right in there, yardage-wise, and just shot it, and it was just perfect dead-on, perfect wind call, um, and so I was I was very pleased that the rifle was on, you know, hadn't been been bumped or anything on the drive over. I didn't expect it to be, but I just, you always, especially on a tag like this, I was so paranoid about, about weapon failure after like those dreams and stuff so it was just a big relief knowing it was it was still on um, my everything was still was still good and i had backup guns ready too but it was just a a little bit of weight off my shoulders knowing that okay i feel you know it was a absolute perfect shot just only shot one and and just had some i had some uh you know confidence going into it well rolling into the hunt day how's it start man yeah, so it was it was kind of slow uh, at first. Opening day was that Saturday, and it was you know weather wise it was warm. I think it got to like seventy five or so opening day, uh, and um I hadn't eaten anything on Friday. I think I had drank like a Gatorade on that day before, so um, I'm starting to feel a little better, but I'm still definitely weak. There was this kind of glassy knob. Uh, we were gonna start with some type two block management in the morning, and then you know see how that looked. So there's this glassy knob we got up to uh, right at you know, a little before first light and as the sun came up, you know, I'm, I'm picturing like, you know, hundreds of elk and, you know, bulls fighting in this little meadow below <laughs> us. And there's like one scrawny antelope that like got lost somehow and he's by himself. And then there's this one deer like a mile away. And that was, that was all we saw. 
I was like, man, maybe this would be different than I than I expected it to be. But uh, didn't say anything the first morning. We did a loop kind of through the whole block management just in case they were somewhere else. And uh, you could tell it's a place they definitely like like in the fall and the winter. But it was clear that elk hadn't at least moved on there at least any time that that summer. So uh, after that, we kind of we bailed fairly early, and we were confident there was none on there. And we went to some some public, and really never saw much that day in terms of elk we did sit on a, a kind of a top of a butte you know that evening and and just glass trying to find you know elk moving anywhere just to help pinpoint for the next day and saw quite a few quite a few bucks um one decent buck and a lot of road hunters um you know looking for deer it was funny to watch deer behavior i never just observed deer or you know been that indifferent to deer because i'm looking for elk on this trip but uh watching these deer you know deer road hunters they would a deer, I from the elevation knew where I could see it. The deer would be, you know, 30 yards below the road, and you'd see a group of bucks just feeding, and they would just kind of stop and look up at the road. And as soon as that truck goes by, they just go back to feeding. And you know, road hunters were were none the wiser. I was uh, amazed how many bucks we saw close to roads, but that never had, you know, actual like on foot hunting pressure, and they just they weren't affected by it at all. Can, for listeners who are unaware, can because we mentioned it a couple times, can you just explain what block management is? Like high level? Yeah. So in, yep. Yeah, so in, in some of the Western states, there is uh, federal programs to where there there's some, you're, you're like actual like massive, you know, production, you know, farms and ranches and things that have, you know, tons and tons of acreage. Uh, you know, for them, a lot of times, elk or, or deer or, or a nuisance because they're running cattle or it's just something that you know wrecks fences for them so they'll allow access to public to be able to use their their property uh, and each one has its own set of rules but uh, essentially for hunting season there's generally two types there's type one which means you don't need uh any sort of special permission there's usually like a sign-in box like on a fence there'll be a place when like you know this is where you park and head in and out and you sign up for the day or sometimes you know multiple days and then you get to go hunt that that private land um, like it's like it's public. It's a really cool program. The ranchers or landowners they get reimbursed. I don't know if it's total number of hunters or, or hunt days or what, but on the back end of the season they turn in you know their little logs and they get some sort of financial reimbursement from the government. Type two uh, is just where you have to have some sort of, I don't know if it's with a written verbal, but you have to have like permission from the landowner other than just signing in. So he says, yep, you can hunt this specific day, or he might say you can hunt this specific ranch or this specific, you know, whatever. But they're they're more like assigning you an area you can hunt. And that's more to do with, you know, they probably have cattle or, or something in a certain field, or they might have, you know, agriculture being harvested in this other location. So they're kind of managing, you know, when and, and where you get access to. And But same thing, once, as long as you're approved, you're able to, to to utilize the, the land you have permission for um, to hunt and, and to do, you know, fish or whatever you're there for. Uh, it's a super cool program. And some of the, some of the states that have these massive ranches, uh, quite a few of them are, are enrolled in the program. So it's, it's, it's something to look at if you're, you know, going out West and some of these tags that are, that seem landlocked by private, you know, look up some of the block management maps on the various, you know, fishing game sites and, and see if there's anything that's available to you. Cause a lot of times, there are and it, it gives you opportunities so first day is pretty dang slow how do things progress yeah first day is slow um 
second day, second hunt day is, is still pretty slow. Had to run into town for fuel. And this is the thing that one of the things that surprised me um, that I wasn't anticipating was how much fuel I was going to burn. The, the roads are, or even the county roads are just very, very rough uh, and, and very rutted. And just the, for some reason, the fuel consumption of my truck was way higher than, than normal. So I could basically, it was like 70-ish miles to, you can't really call it town, but like to a gas pump for like, you know, agriculture stuff. You can go to, to the gas. And by the time I would get back to hunting grounds and camp, like I've burned like a quarter tank or more in my truck. So I was having to run back and get top off fuel. Um, I just never expected that to be an issue. I'm used to like, you know, a whole week of hunting and never, you know, getting gas in the truck. And it just took out so much, you know, it was a three hour round trip to go get fuel. And that just car, that took away a lot more time than, than I anticipated. Uh, so hindsight, I would have brought, my, my buddy did have a small gas can that for a generator that we were able to use and we just cannibalized it for the truck. But uh, hindsight, if I've hot in some of these, these locations I'm not familiar with in the future, I'm for sure going to bring a couple gas cans just in case I run into a similar problem. I have a little Toyota Tacoma. It's probably part of it. You know, a big full-size truck could probably be fine, but at least in my truck, it was, it was a pain in the butt and carving out, you know, three hours is significant. And when the days are getting shorter and it's like, well, you want to do it at the end of the day when you're, you know, super tired, want to go to bed or do you want to do it, you know, maybe midday. So if it was, you know, midday and action was slow, um, that's when we were choosing to race into town and to, and to get gas. On this trip, the cool thing, though, was, you know, you always read these flyers and get these emails from, like, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And we were we were driving to town, and I saw this little, tiny little sign on the side of the road. And it was a spot on the map that I had crossed off for access because it had a private, one of those things where it had, like, a little private right by the road. And it looked like you had access, but you couldn't. And so I backed up to read the sign, and it was, you know, talked about access being provided and paid for by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And basically, they bought this little easement strip to get into this big state section of public. Uh, and so that's kind of cool. So we just drove down there to just explore it on the way in, basically. And uh, lots of deer sign and the same thing, like older wintry elk sign. Um, but ran into a, a prairie dog town that hadn't been shot up. So I tested my dope uh, one more time on some prairie dogs. Uh, and then relayed the location to my, my dad and his buddy. They bought um, prairie dog guns because we knew there'd be prairie dog towns around. So I, I sent them over that way and they went and, and had fun in the prairie dog town while we went into town and, and got gas. They had seen three elk that morning. And so uh, we got gas and came back and, and went to where they had saw, I'm sorry, they'd seen some elk track that morning. We went to where they had saw elk tracks and based off the tracks, we kind of found the timber we thought they might have moved up into. And so we just kind of found a good spot to glass and, and spend the rest of the day there glassing. And, and finally, right at last light, we saw three cows feed out. And as we were headed back, a, a small bull and another cow came out. So that was our hunt day two. Um, we finally saw, you know, elk and illegal bull. So at least we we're starting to see them, which is promising. But it was, you know, it was a, it was a, just a small little little raghorn. It wasn't what we were looking for, but it was just nice to finally see elk on a on a tag like this. Yeah. Uh, third day, it was rain. In this in this country, rain is like the worst thing you can have. The the type of like gumbo base that make up a lot of the, a lot of the land, especially the roads. Um, I don't know how to describe it other than it's just completely impassable. You know, every step you take, you get like an inch taller, just sticks to your boots. Then every, you know, eight or nine steps, you have to try to kick off this gumbo off your boots. Uh, and it, 
fills your tire treads and like your treads just it just doesn't clear you actually have a couple inches of just gumbo like above your tire just spinning so when it rains you literally you're unless you're on a like a gravel county type road you're kind of stuck where you're at until until it dries luckily it's usually windy enough there you know usually dries like same day but we lost all of day three terrain um just just due to the the roads entirely nothing from the actual hunting to the rain aspect but just the roads were were impassable finally that evening the roads were really slippery but you could you know you could like make forward momentum and progress um we bombed up just to see where um the elk were the day before but it was it was just totally socked in with fog you can't see 50 yards and we ended up just heading back to camp it was an entire day lost uh, to weather hunting wise unfortunately and then that was the first camp day when we had issues too the 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 big cook stove we had in the big propane tank the regulator started acting weird and freezing up on the propane stove so our main you know cooking source we had some dutch ovens and other options but the main cooking source uh started acting really finicky with this regulator just like freezing up and not letting the propane flow properly uh so we had a little smaller backup stove but we switched to that but that was like a sign of things to come just just having you know camp problems uh, the temps were down to probably 40 or so and that, you know, kind of that cold forties rain. Um, it's not enjoyable. It's very huntable, but those, those roads are just, we lost an entire day on that third day. Hmm. So the next day. Pause real quick. Cause it's like, it's important. It, it's easy to skip by this stuff on like telling a podcast story, but when you're living it, it's a different thing. Like you're, it's the third hunt day. It's really the fifth day of your trip and being out there, but. Yeah. You've been sick. You, you know, are having these camp issues. You're having crap weather between heat and then rain. You're going into a hunt. You burned a bunch of points on. You have these somewhat high but realistic trophy expectations of these giant bulls running around. But in all reality, you've only seen three cows and a small bull. You know, it's just like those things. It's easy to like skip past that now. But over the course of living that for five days, like, that starts to wear on you. And that's the thing that if people don't expect those types of like setbacks and difficulties on a hunt, even a hunt like this, which is again, not a backpack hunt, not the most, you know, backcountry thing ever, right? Like it's a base camp hunt, but you still have to expect like stuff's going to go wrong. I'm gonna have to roll with the punches and deal with it. Cause otherwise you get five days into this experience. And a lot of guys are, throwing in the towel you know or not hunting hard because they're a bit dejected oh yeah for sure i was starting to do i was starting to get a little bit stressed just like are the elk just because it had been so warm prior to this i was like what if they're not you know what if they don't even come down to this area during this you know 10 days i have out here and then uh and then back at home it's stressful too we have a, a, a bathroom remodel insurance stuff we were going through at the same time and then, you know, a you know, five-year-old son that is a ton of fun right now. And so just not being there for those things, it, it all, yeah, you're right. It all starts to weigh on you. And and I, I was committed, but it was, it was, it would have been easy to, to just throw in the towel then, or, hey, we'll try back. We'll come back in a few weeks when it's better weather, or let's do something different. But uh, yeah, it was, it was starting like at the end of that day, and losing a whole day sitting in camp, you're just kind of there with your thoughts, thinking about it. And it was, that was probably the hardest, one of the hardest days, just because 
knowing that I wasted a whole day sitting in camp was super frustrating. Mm-hmm. Does it get any better from here? <laughs> it does. Well, no, it actually gets worse before it gets better. <laughs> so the next day um, was the fourth day we got uh, on a new section of BLM. I'm sorry, a new section of block management had permission for. And so it was, it was, I was excited for it because the weather was starting to cool down. It's area we haven't, you know, seen before. So okay, maybe we'll get into something. And we did. We got up there. It was a cool layout. Super. These some of these properties are just so stinking cool. Uh, this one, it was like a mile long ridge to this state section that was, I think, a, a square mile state section at the end of it. And then all these like little finger ridges coming off, and some were timbered, some were open. Uh, just super, super cool layout and super cool property. Uh, and it started out slow, saw quite a few deer, but no elk. And and finally, right towards the very end, I got us a, a, a smell of elk. And so we kind of went to the other side of this ridge. And I could tell where I thought they'd bedded in this timber kind of below. And I could, it was starting to, to kind of snow. And it was starting to cover up. Um, there wasn't, you know, tracks in the snow, but you can tell when, you know, the earth has been kicked up from, from elk moving up. And the snow was kind of starting to cover that. But I could tell where they'd come out from this little this little draw uh below us so just through trying to follow our smell and just the, the path we thought they would be going uh, we just tried to to find these elk and ended up finding them the very very end and it was it was a decent bull it was it was a 300 inch uh six point and he had um eight to eight to ten cows probably and i threw up the spotter on him and i just he was looking at me and i saw these giant fronts and i was already getting you know dope in my rifle set up and that's when I looked back at my buddy Doug and he's waving me off like, no, this is like, this is like a 300 inch elk. He just has good fronts. Like, his, you know, his back's really weak and his third's really weak. And so we spent some more time looking at him and decided it wasn't, you know, the one I wanted. But like you just said, Mark, after, after having, you know, some rough days and he finally see a decent elk, it's like, well, maybe my, like maybe, maybe 300 is a, a good expedition. Maybe it's not 360, but he waved me off a bit, which is, you know, good in hindsight. Uh, cool thing here was they, they we watched them bed and so we kind of worked around this other little this other little it was like a bunch of little tiny um high spots with like a little saddle in between all the way up this almost like a backbone um kind of ridge and so we got to the other side of them and they're probably 500 yards away we were just watching them and i wanted to see if maybe there's a bigger bull you know with them that we just hadn't seen up feeding and below us was this coyote den that we hadn't seen and at some point the coyote like heard us or heard the elk and came out and it it couldn't see the elk the coyote couldn't but it could see me and doug and so it just started just yipping at us and yipping at us enough to where the elk got nervous so even though it couldn't see the elk the elk stood up and we're looking down at where this coyote sound was from and after probably 10 or 12 minutes it was fun to watch the elk actually the bull he herded up his cows and just rounded them up and took them over you know the other side down in some thick timber uh so it was, it was cool to watch knowing it wasn't a bull you know we wanted to shoot uh but i was i was kind of shocked that you know this kind of scrawny looking coyote 500 yards away um it bugged him enough to where he grounded him up and, and just took him off the other side into the timber I, I was frankly surprised that that a coyote would even do that you know weather started getting better um it was getting cold that day definitely it was was freezing um by the time we were you know midday up there and starting to get windy I enraged a couple of buddies for some some weather reports and that's when they're like, dude, there's there's like a giant blizzard warning for your location. It was calling for 35 mile an hour winds and I think 13 to 15 inches of snow, something like that, um, overnight. 
and the temps, the highs were going to be in the in the twenties the next day. And I figured out what they were going to be overnight, but it was definitely going to start getting, getting cold. And we knew it was going to cool down, not to that extent though, before. So the plan while we were out hunting that day, dad and Matt were going to get fuel and then they were going to kind of put camp in Arctic mode. They were going to swap from the nine by nine and put up a, a 12 by 12 with a, with a stove inside. We had plenty of firewood. And then we were going to have most of the water with these big, like five gallon, you know, water jugs. So we we're going to put the water in there and we were going to, you know, dump the ice out of the coolers and, and kind of convert coolers to, you know, keeping, you know, food from freezing at that point. So that was going to happen um, while we were out hunting. Well, we get back after that day, uh, we get back. We decided to leave a little bit early uh, since there's no other elk on this area and head back to camp and just help us to make sure it's all set up and help out. And then we got there and it was just a ghost town. The, the nine by nine is still there and none of the stuff had moved. And uh, I went up and got service and just, you know, reached out to make sure they were okay. And the, they had, my dad had wrecked his truck uh, pretty significantly. That gumbo we rode from the rain the day before, they were going down a different way to town. And there was just this little steep section where it just had been super wet still. They rode head and dried out there. And just the second their tires, uh, you know, hit it was almost like just like you know a sheet of ice. They just just ended up sliding sideways all the way down this this hill and went off the the side of the road and kind of smashed the whole right side into this bank and uh, it like smashed into the the bank so hard it actually like pushed the tires off the rim. But so much mud like flowed into the tire it like resealed the rim if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to get the truck unstuck and kind of limp it to town and get the tires repaired and get fuel and, and come back, but they got back you know, kind of late. And so when we all got there, you know, camp was, was kind of in disarray and, and water was, was not frozen solid, but you know, it was kind of, you know, you're the, the top of the waters are, are frozen. You're kind of chipping, you know, the top way to get stuff to pour out. Uh, and so we ended up, we decided to throw it up in the, Doug's ice fishing tent with like a buddy heater with all the water that night. We thought that would keep it, you know, thawed enough. And then the next day they were going to, they were kind of, after you wreck a truck, you're kind of cranky and tired and, you know, at least feel like doing camp chores. So they're going to go to bed in the nine by nine and, and set up the 12 by 12 and stove and stuff in the morning. And so uh, the next day we woke up to the, the blizzard wasn't nearly as bad as expected, which is great. Um, probably eight to 10 inches of snow and some, some snow drifts, but not, we definitely didn't get the 35 mile an hour winds. It was, I would say it was, you know, 10 to 15 um, tops. We were kind of camped down this little hole, which helped out quite a bit. So Doug and I got up early and, and decided to see if we could make it up to where those elk had been the day before. So we got up early and head up there and there was some snow just that we took longer, but we made it up there. No problem. Uh, Ended up not being any new elk up there. One, one lone bull had moved through there in the snow, but we couldn't find any elk. A couple of really nice deer, but no elk. Uh, still cold, still snowing. And so on the way to get some fuel, excuse me, on the way to get fuel, we got a text from my dad and camp. Basically everything was covered in, you know, 10 inches of snow, except where it was drifted. Some of the drifts, you know, could be quite a bit more than that. And then all the water was frozen solid. The, the heater thing didn't, didn't work. And then the propane regulator was totally iced up and, and wasn't working. And, you know, they kind of dug out some firewood and things. We could have gone to, you know, trying to build a, a big fire and, and getting stuff thawed. But at that point, it's down to the, the team temperature wise. And we kind of 
figured it was a losing battle. And so they called just a local motel an hour or so away to see if they had any, any space. And the blizzard had pushed so many hunters out early uh, that they actually had a couple of rooms. And so they ended up booking a couple of rooms, uh, one for them, one for us. Uh, so while we were getting gas, they broke down their part of camp and, and headed into the motel. And then uh, we raced back, grabbed, you know, our stuff, our tent, uh, and, and broke down camp as quick as we could and then headed back into the motel. So we lost a, a second, basically lost a half day hunting there. Uh, just by relocating camp and, and getting to the hotel motel. I think if water wasn't frozen solid and we thought we could reasonably get, you know, water going soon, I think we would have to stayed and seen we could figure out. But with, you know, four guys drinking water and, and not an ounce of thawed water in sight, the decision was was kind of no brainer at that point. This hunt is going great for you. I'm sure you're so excited. <laughs> oh my God. At what point does it get better? <laughs> oh. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, and I get, and then I felt that anyone that has a dad, you can know when it's just not fun, and knowing that you know, seeing your dad's truck all banged the crap on the yeah. side, it's like you just you feel awful about it. And so they ended up that next day. So we stayed in the hotel that night. Um, that next day, they ended up um, they ended up heading back home. They had a they had a trailer and uh, pulled a bunch of stuff and. Uh, we kind of had to cross the level at this point you know we have breaking down camp was hasty so there's there's three pickup trucks there and there's different you know stuff in all three trucks we kind of that night before kind of cross leveled what stuff we needed to keep from them like we needed to keep the backup so we were just going to cook in the motel with with the food that was currently frozen in the coolers but you know we over the day and the, the night in the hotel that that food thought out and then the water was an issue so we just were going to cook food in the in the motel and call it good so they ended up leaving the next morning heading back and they had horrible just like 30 mile an hour just ice ice roads the whole way back i felt i felt horrible for them uh, but doug and i got up and, and went back um hunting and it was we didn't see because now we're on let's see we're on hunt day five right yeah we're on hunt day five no i lied we're on day six yeah it was still cold it was still snowy uh, but it was starting to it was starting to to like get less accumulation it was that kind of like almost like ice crystals falling if that makes sense and it wasn't wasn't still stacking up you know snow depth uh, i went back to that same block of management in the morning where we had seen that small herd of that small herd with that smaller six point and we actually saw four bulls work over the top and one of the bucket list things you know, always see these hunting films and these dudes are watching you know these elk fight and it always looked so cool to me i finally got to see it these four bulls came over and there was there was one really big like I think it was a super old bull, huge five on one side and, and kind of a normal six on the other. Um, but we just watched them feed. They, they came down to get water and watching them just kind of spar, just just play around. Um, it was super fun. I got a ton of uh, uh, spotting coat footage through my phone. And it was just a buckless thing for me that I'd always wanted to see in person. And it was it was just super cool to watch them, watch them just kind of spar for a while. Uh, but we built a fire. Um, we ended up losing quite a bit of visibility as some fog and stuff rolled through. Uh, ended up leaving that area for some some block management, um, or I'm sorry, for some BLM public stuff, and that was the you know, we saw that day. Uh, it was it was hard glassing. It was almost like these ice crystals coming down, and so you'd pull your binos out and just before they'd even get to your eye, they were like lined in these little tiny ice crystals, and then like your eye temperature 
would melt them and like make it fog. So it was just a pain in the butt, even just glass and anything um, during that time. And once the fog moved in, we built a fire and waited it out, but it, it never really left. So we kind of headed back to the hotel that evening. Um, didn't set any sort of tracks or anything across you know the roads that we might be able to do that for the next day. Uh, but we were hopeful because the next day was going to be we had access to a different chunk of of BLM, uh, and so we finally thought, okay, well we'll be able to hunt a new spot, not hunt it out. So we went to recon it that night before we left, and the there was a truck park there. Someone else had access or permission, you know, for that day, and so we went from being excited to finally see some new country to being a little bit discouraged, knowing the well, man, there's already been someone or someone's tracing through there, you know, with pretty good hunting conditions. So we were a little bit concerned for the next day, but we didn't have a better plan. And so we decided, well, we'll, we'll go try it out in that morning and, and see if we can shake out. So that leads us to hunt day seven. Finally, the good day, finally things turn around. But uh, new, new area to hunt, it was pretty cool. It was kind of two, these two big, smaller than a mountain, like more than a knob, but these kind of two big knobs that were kind of partially open timbered and then a lot of kind of flat open, just grass, fade, rushy stuff in the middle. And so we kind of did a big sweeping uh, counterclockwise circuit around this and ended up climbing up to the top of the first knob just to get to a glassing point. And I bumped a, a smaller 285, 290 type um, six point with a little herd at the very, very top. And they were on the, on the sun side, on the south side, and they were on the the you know the leeward non-wind side it was pretty windy that day and so we tried to get a different angle and vantage point just to see if if they had had moved somewhere else in case there was you know another bull or, or other elk with them and we got on their tracks and they just lined out and just you know left the unit and so at this point it was probably my lowest of lows for me personally um i was i was pretty much set on the next morning you know kind of packing up our gear and then you know doing a morning hunt and then kind of leaving headed back home and I was planning to come back in later in the month of November for like another week to 10 days um, but just didn't didn't think that they had moved into the area at this point in time enough to enough to keep you know producing this level of effort and and commitment each day and so I thought back to the previous day and all those elk and we'd seen a ton of deer all crashing down to this one water source and I decided let's see if there's any water on this this area since everything seems to be looking for water and a lot of these thinner you know thinner ponds and things are all frozen. So there was a water source that we decided to go uh, and check out and there had been nothing on it. But while we were there, I was like, well, let, these elk we just seen were on you know the south side of this one knob. Let's just continue our big counterclockwise circuit and we'll just see if there's anything out in the sun you know on this other knob. They're I don't know half mile apart maybe. So as we were doing that, pretty much already planned on, you know, wrapping up the next morning and kind of headed out. Um, I just happened to look up and there was this, you know, a little tiny shoot of, of grass up to this like saddle and right below the saddle, I just saw this brown thing under a tree and you kind of just glance up and, you know, take a couple steps and then I just paused and I, I thought it was a log initially, but as I was looking at it, I was like, you know, all the other logs have had snow on them and there's no snow on the top of this one. So I took a couple steps back and threw up binos and it was, I could tell it was a good bull um, bedded by himself. He was kind of right out there in the, in the sun with a, you know, a really good vantage point below him. And, you know, he was right below that saddle. He was getting, you know, all the smell and scent from the other side of this knob coming out over that saddle. So he was in a, in a perfect spot for, for him. Uh, and so even in the binos, I could tell I was pretty set on shooting it. Uh, so I, my 
my buddy wasn't carrying the rifle, so he had the spotter. So I put out the tripod and, and he threw me the spotter and we just threw it on there to confirm real fast that it was a shooter. And I just frankly saw the top end and and I think I told him, I said, it's big enough to end this misery, I think is what I said. And so I just got the dope ready and it was five five fifty four, I think, um, yardage wise. And I felt I, I do a lot of long range stuff and, and was very comfortable with that with that distance. And so I just crawled up this little tiny ridge so I could get a, a spot where I didn't think you'd be able to see me get kind of set up. And the snow was deep enough when I couldn't use a, my bipod, so I kind of had to go on top of my pack, you know, with the rifle because it floated in the snow a little bit better. And then, uh, yeah, I just got settled on him and, and, and in the high shoulder. And I think I sent you a video, Mark, but he just, you know, you can hear the, you can hear the shot and his head just tips over. Um, I did shoot him. I was so paranoid. I did shoot him a couple more times because it's, his neck kept kind of moving or twitching and I just didn't want to have to deal with like an injured big bull or like, you know, leaving this, leaving private I have access to like on private, I don't. And so I was like, no, this thing just seemed to get anchored. So I, I shot him a couple more times um, all right in the shoulder just to make sure he wasn't going anywhere. And uh, at that point, like it was, it was crazy how quickly it changed from like planning how I'm going to load the truck up and, and you know have my gear in there to hunt one thing in the morning and head home to to within two minutes later probably to now planning like hey now how are we going to get this bull out of here and back to the truck so it was i mean every year i tell myself it can you know you just takes a second but it was a perfect example just two minute difference went from you know the lowest of lows to having i don't know how big but i knew it was a, a mature bull you know dead on the ground yeah man yeah it's just like it's it's so cliche to say that but then when you live it and you have an experience like that like it truly just solidifies that belief you know and that's something you carry into all your future hunts like this can change literally within less than a minute everything can change yeah for sure so many times i've shot an animal like on the last day of a trip and uh we had another hunt day that was available to us if we needed it but um it uh yeah, it was it was a good feeling for sure to to walk up and and it was bigger than we expected. When he walked up to it, um, I think my buddy said, "Holy cow, that's a big bull!" And we didn't know score wise what he was, but he just his mass was was just crazy. His beam length, it ended up being fifty five, I think, on his beams, but just just super long and just a just a cool like just big old mature bull. That's awesome. He was all by himself up there. Yeah, he's by himself. Um, just just bedded, perfect spot. You know, ton wind cover, and he could see everything below him. And yeah, uh, and th- there was only a tiny section, to even you know, there at probably ten yards or so. This little shoot, like of just the way the timber was in a perfect open line, you know, up to see him. Ten yards further, we would have never even seen him again. So just happened to look in the right spot at the right time to to see a brown thing up there. And I'm glad we gave it a second look because you know it ended up being a good one, but. Um, yeah, by himself. Uh, his only, you know, we'll break them down. His tracks are up there, and it looks like just he'd been up there at least that whole day, probably two days, just kind of meandering and feeding, and that was his little spot. Wow. What I don't even know if I ever asked or even said what did he end up taping at roughly? Uh, three three fifty six and six eighths, right in there. Jeez. Big goal. That's a stud his man. Thirds are super. Yeah, it would have been. It was great. I was um, more than pleased. His thirds were really short. Um, with with normal size thirds on elk, I think he would have been 
significantly higher, but I think his thirds were like nine and 11 or something. Um, but just the, the mass is like, I've never seen Elkwood's mass like that. Just unbelievable. And his, one of his thirds is super cool. He could tell where he got like, caught up in a fence at some point over the, over that year. And he just has like a, this smooth, big, like circle or rubbed around it where he had been, you know, clearly trying to get this fence or wire or something off his, his antler for a long time. And like, this this perfect, just, you know, worn down fence ring on one of his antlers is super cool. Such a great story of, I mean, they're just sticking with it, right? Like not, so many guys would have packed up uh, with that blizzard and just called it. And I'll come back another time. Yeah, I know you had other dates you could have come back in later in November, but who's to say you would have had Hannibal weather then, right? Absolutely. And in hindsight, it was, in this area, it was actually a really poor weather for hunting. The elk harvest was down um, almost 60% for this particular area I was hunting. And a lot of it was just was just weather. Um, it was just a warm, a warm fall. How did the... Uh what must have been a cold and late breaking that bull down and getting packed out. How did that go? It went, excuse me, it went really good. The only, the only thing that was tough was my, I had sent a picture. I, we luckily had service. Uh, and so I sent my wife a picture and she said, I feel like you probably need to keep like the whole thing or the whole head. I forgot how she phrased it, but whatever she said, I was like, Doug, you see it. This is evidence. Like we have green light for like a legit like shoulder mount. So I never actually mounted anything before. <laughs> and so we decided to cape it out and we tubed the legs. And I've never normally I just, you know, hack the head off and I'll just do like a year or something, just get it beetled. Uh it I was it took me forever to cape and tube out the legs. I don't know why. It probably took us an hour just to get the cape off. Once we had that off, then it was fine and we were, you know, breaking it down and and the pack out wasn't looking bad. We had probably half a mile to this kind of natural saddle between these two, you know, big knobs I was talking about. And from there you couldn't drive on it, but there was a, like a, like a, I would say like a ranch, you know, two track type thing, smaller than a truck, but probably like a four wheeler type two track. They had clearly driven to, to check on cows or something. And so it was fairly easy walking. We you know once we got there, um, there was a lot of little kind of up and down coolie stuff until we got to that saddle. But from there it was probably a mile and a half, um, maybe two out to the truck. And it was getting dark. Our plan was to, we wanted to get everything to that saddle, you know, before dark, because we didn't want to be going up these little super snowy coolies, you know, um, in the dark if possible. And so we did, uh, I took all my gear and a hind quarter and I think Doug did a hind quarter and I think the, the, either a front shoulder or like the, the tenders and back drops and neck meat and stuff. Uh, but we got that to the, to the little saddle. And then we, um, you know, dropped in you know, all my rifle and gear and stuff. And I just went back and then I brought out the Kate's, uh, head and horns and he brought out the rest of the meat. Then we got it to that, to that little saddle. And when we got there, it was right. The sun was going down, um, some really pretty pictures, but got there right at the right time. And then we did, uh, we threw quarters back in and, and I took a, we each took a hind quarter back out to the truck. Just a beautiful, like the moon, full moon, close to full moon. I don't know if it's full or not, but super close to full moon. Just like not a cloud in the sky, stars out. And, you know, after that was the first day, it finally stopped snowing for the last couple of days. Just, you know, gorgeous night, perfect night to, to break down elk and to get it back to the truck. I had a drag in the truck. 
super cool. It's like three pounds, I want to say, and I don't carry it everywhere um, by any means, but on certain trips, I'll, I'll bring it. And it worked out awesome for this because I was surprised how heavy a, a big bull like cape and, and horns and head were. It was way more than the hind quarter was. And so I was like, I'm not carrying this thing back to the truck. We'll carry hinds out and then we'll, we'll throw this on a sled. With that snow on the ground, it just works so slick. The, you put the head and cape and horns on the sled with the two fronts and then the the back shafts and tenderloin stuff and kind of bungeed it all up. And I was able to just basically walk uh, and just have it slide behind me relatively easily. And then on the hill section, uh, my buddy, just he just grabbed the horns, you know, behind me and, and pushed while I pulled. And it was, we were able to walk, you know, basically normal walking pace um, for that last two miles out of there on the last trip. And we had headlamps and it was, uh, you know, in the dark and it was just a super cool pack out. I looked down, just before I got back to the truck, I looked down, I was wearing uh, my Sitka Ambient hoodie, and I looked down, and there was, just to, to comment on how well it breathes, there was like a thousand little ice crystals, it looked like little tiny, just ice, like little ice daggers, and through like all the little, you know, pores in the shirt, my, my water vapor had been, you know, transferring through to the outside, but it was so cold, that morning it was like two below. It was so cold that they were just like the, the water vapor was freezing. So it just looked, it was so cool. Like a thousand little tiny just ice knives, like down my whole chest, just where the water vapor was freezing. It was, uh, it, it was a live demonstration of how those, you know, modern fabrics and technology works as far as transferring water vapor is pretty cool. That's cool. Man, it's a envisioning like that pack out that had to been super enjoyable just after everything you went through. And then you have this cold pack out full moon in the snow but just relishing the success there with your buddy like what a cool way to cap the hunt yeah no it was awesome um if i would have had all i all i would have asked for is uh, i think my water was either gone or frozen um but some we had a, a cold can of coke in the truck and it was like the best tasting coke i've ever had in my life but yeah <laughs> just an awesome experience um and it, yeah, for as far as pack up go, you know, it could have been could have been way worse. So to have a just a to have one that was like you said, just enjoyable. Yeah, it just capped off the the trip in an unbelievable way. Throughout the conversation, like I think we highlighted so many things of like lessons you learned. Like a part of me wants to recap that, but there's so many things in there about you know water management and fuel and anticipating the setbacks of you know um, these types of hunts and weather. So. I feel like we already hit a lot, but is there any one thing in particular that we didn't cover that you want to make sure we hit or highlight? Yeah, just the one thing that I thought about later was uh, in my mind, these limit entry tags, like they almost came with like guaranteed success, if that makes sense in my mind. And uh, at least in this one, that wasn't the case. Uh, and just, you know, I what I envisioned was, you know, even though it's a low density elk unit, there's so little people pressurized honey bulls i envision like you know 300 inch bulls you know all over the place and kind of picking and choosing what i want and uh at the end of the day i think we saw 12 or 14 you know total bulls over you know uh, a week of, of hard hunting and kind of crappy conditions so definitely the, the tag doesn't guarantee success you still got to put in some effort and and frankly get a little bit lucky so i definitely will going forward as i start to cash in some of these western states and, and some of these other points uh, it'll be a good reminder, but just just the, the tag. You still gotta you still gotta put in your time and effort and research, and just that just having the tag is not gonna get you a giant elk or a giant mule deer for sure. 
Well said. Thanks for sharing the story, man. Yeah, happy to. We got it worked out, and uh, yeah, the pack ran pack ran awesome. And that's I just actually washed it the other day and put it back together. So now I'm ready for whatever the next adventure is. <laughs> awesome. Well, there you have it, guys. A lot of takeaways in that one. Congrats again to Rob on a very successful hunt, an amazing elk, and obviously one that was well-earned with a lot of hard work and effort. If you guys have any questions for us, be sure to send an email to podcast at xamontgear.com. And if you haven't yet, be sure to hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon.